Welcome to Junkyard Theory, folks. Today, we've got somebody very special in the house, Donald Movat. Thank you so much for joining us. Are you Bowen, sir? Are you Bowen to you? Good morning, everybody. Good morning. And Thank you good for evening having from me. Sri Lanka. <laughs> um, it's wonderful so, to speak to everybody in Sri Lanka. I'm in uh, Los Angeles. It's a sunny, we had some, not such sunny weather, but now it's a beautiful day and it's 20 minutes to 10 in the morning. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> good morning to you and good evening from us. So everybody, Donald has worked on, you name any big blockbuster movie, it's probably got his name on it. So movies ranging from Spider-Man Far From Home, Skyfall Spectre to the most recently released Dune and Hope and also the upcoming Moon Knight series from Marvel Studios. So Donald has uh, an extensive career spanning around 35 years. So uh, Donald, talk to me a little bit about how you got into uh, makeup, how you got into the film industry. Um, I, you know, I think, um, I think, how did I start? Well, I think every kid, when you like something and it's nurtured, you know, I loved movies. I always did. But most kids do. I love books as well, but I love movies more. And my dad loved movies. And, and so we went quite a lot. And then we watched films on television and Sunday night. There was always, I grew up in, in Canada. So we always had like masterpiece theater. So it was very Britishy, Commonwealthy, you know, Sunday night, lots of British television. Um, and, and I was really fascinated by the way things looked, by the people, by the costumes. And, the, and I started, I mean, this is the honest to God truth. I started to notice like the credits and I saw all these men, men's names, makeup designer, makeup supervisor, chief makeup, and they were all men. And I was like, well, I could do that. And and it gave me kind of because you think makeup and when I talked about it, you know, I was talking about theater and things like that. People were like, that's for girls. And it was like, no, it's not. It's not. And then I started to really research it. And so, you know, I was in some drama clubs, as kids do, you know, in, in high school, elementary school, children's theater. And I started playing around. Someone gave me the you know, it's we it's really the Bible of of. Uh, film makeup, uh, Richard Corson, The Art of Makeup, and all kinds of books. Then I was going to the library and finding all these books. And next thing, the teacher said, why don't you do the makeup for the school play? And that's really how I started. So virtually no formal training other than meeting some wonderful people who did have little bits of training. And I learned a lot on the way and kept going to school and studying art history and painting. And that's it. That's what happened. And then started working with photographers who said, hey, can you come and do the makeup? And everyone was always looking for the natural look to make the girls look like they were very pretty, but not made up. And that really launched me into the film business. So in a very long way of telling you, that's really what happened. So it's like, follow your dream. I, I decided. And then I was like, that's what I'm doing. And I was determined, even though I had to work in a toy store, I was a waiter, I sold shoes. I lived on a futon, a very small apartment. I moved from Montreal to Toronto, and then I went Toronto to New York, and then New York to LA. I went to London. I just, you have to follow your dream. That's that's cool. Talk to me a little bit about uh, that. Uh, so most of my guests, uh, the, the ones that I get on the show, they they talk about, you know, when they talk about their origin story, there's always something, you know, they've always been passionate and they worked various other jobs as well. 
And there's always something that they bring from those particular jobs or maybe like different other, uh, you know, walks of life. They bring that into filmmaking. And that's essentially what kind of makes them and like how they do it kind of unique. So uh, mm -hmm. is there something that essentially makes you unique? Is there something that you, you know, borrowed from a different mm. author that's yeah. you integrated? Wow, that's a great question. Um, okay, so here's a story I'll share with you. One of my very, very, very best friends, uh, and it's not a sad story. She she passed away uh, two years ago during the the pandemic, and not from COVID. She was an you know elderly lady, but she was my best friend, Miss Shirley. My, my condolences. Well, thank you. She was a wonderful person and my greatest friend, an actress, an activator, um, a great Canadian, although. She lived in, had lived in L.A. for many years, the mother of Kiefer Sutherland. But one thing Shirley taught me, so many, we worked on a few films together. She really gave me the courage to believe that I was better maybe than I really was. But that was her ability. Her great gift to everyone I ever met was she made you believe in yourself. And that's very important. And, and I think that we are in a, a society, and I, I can speak for where I live or where I come from, I felt that it was a very negative environment for people trying to do something different. And, you know, bless Shirley, because she would was like, no, you can do this and you're going to do it and you'll get on the plane and you'll go. And I was scared. So she was right. But here I, I digress. But here's what she taught me. I went to work on a very small film somewhere in Canada, like in Manitoba. Oh, my God. I mean, really in the country. And it was a very tricky film. It was complex, complicated narrative piece. And I remember telling her something. There was some people I was working with and I thought they were not, wasn't my favorite experience. Let's just talk that way. And I remember saying to her something about somebody. And she said to me, listen, if you're no good at whatever you do, like as you're working up. So if you're doing your part-time job and your phone, your job is to answer the phone at McDonald's or you work there or you work in a shoe store. I did it. Or a toy store. I did it. And you're not good at it. I was good at it. I was polite. Uh, good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, madam. How may I help you? If you're not good at that, you won't be good at anything. And that's what she taught me because she said in broader, not the most polite language, she said for for the love of whatever, she said, For the, if that guy was working in McDonald's, he wouldn't be able to figure out how to put the French fries out. Why is he going to learn how to be the best costume designer, the best makeup artist, the best sound mixer? Because he didn't apply himself. And I've always taken that with me about Shirley everywhere I go, because everyone tells me they want to work into the business. Oh, I want to be an actor. I want to be a producer. I want to be a writer. And I go, yeah, but in the meantime, how good are you at this? Because I think it shows character. I really do. I mean, look, I know nobody wants to work in McDonald's forever. I get it. I know you don't always want to live on a futon. I did it for two years, actually, and my back was never better. Um, but it's, I think the sacrifice maybe is one of the things I take with me and go, it was a sacrifice. No, I mean, no, I wasn't starving. I always ended up getting a job, but it wasn't always easy. The rent check was not always on time. Um, 
there were a few occasions yet to be overdrawn or borrowing your credit card. That's real for most people today. It's just reality for most people. So who am I to be so special? But I'd say that's what I took with me. That's really what I took with me in my professional career to this day. I never get too comfortable about things like that. And I think I, I think that goes to show, you know, you had a career that spans around oh, more than 35 years. And you have so many people coming into filmmaking. Like it's it's tricky. It's not an easy, easy place to be, like you said. So if you aren't a people person, if you don't really get along well with people, it's you're not gonna last long, right? Look, some people <laughs> Well, there's an exception to the rule. Some people have done remarkably well. <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but some people have. On the other hand, you know, the people are, you do meet some remarkable, extraordinary people that I've loved. And I've become my, you know, as I said, the late Shirley Douglas. I mean, look her up. If anybody listening, look up Shirley Douglas. That was a remarkable, she, you know, her, her legacy was not so much about her acting, but in a way it was because she brought, Lots to the labor movement, lots to the women's movement, lots to civil rights, lots to she marched in the civil rights. She, you know, I've met a lot of people who are remarkable in their lives and there's so many of them. Um, but, yeah, I think that the business has maybe there's a lot of entitlement where people think, I guess they think, look, it's not like going to nursing school, which I highly admire because my mother was a nurse. But when you go to nursing school and become a registered nurse, you get the point and you go and then you have to apply for a job. But most of the time, if you are a graduate nurse, you're going to get a job as a nurse 90 percent of the time. But just because you go to the AFI or Columbia or NYU or the London Film School doesn't mean you're going to get to direct, you know, the next blockbuster film. I think that's a great deal of um, I think there's a lot of ego involved and conceit and arrogance for people to think their vision is actually, you know, and I'm not trying to put anybody down, but it's like, everyone's a writer. And, and I read it somewhere. It made me laugh out loud. It hurt my stomach. Um, uh, she's called Fran Leibovitz, the New York writer. She used to write for Vanity Fair. She made some comments saying, what's up with it? Like everybody's a writer now. Everyone writes a book. There was a time when only great writers wrote a book. So you know what I'm saying? And I think that if everyone's a writer, well, let me, and they send me their scripts. Sometimes you go, oh my God, we all wrote little scripts when we were kids. Remember in school, you wrote stories. That's a great part of literature and education, but it didn't mean they were going to make a movie of your story. And, and you have to work hard. And the great writers out there, I know they're there. Brilliant. Such hard work. But not everyone's going to write the next great screenplay. Exactly. So coming back like filmmaking, uh, you've worked on independent films and then major studio blockbusters. Uh, besides time and money, what do you think are like the other differences that set these apart? Said the, uh, said the art of filmmaking, uh, sorry, said the art of makeup design apart, you know, between indie and studio films. Well, I really appreciate this question because I get asked it quite a lot and, and, I'll say something, and some people will not like my answer, my colleagues particularly. But you know what? I'm on this and they're not. So it's, it's my prerogative. I think sometimes on bigger films, you don't always get the quality of the crew that you get on smaller films. 
And I say this, I'm, I'm very careful how I say it. It's not to say, of course, you work on, what have I worked on? I don't know, maybe Blade Runner 2049, huge film, huge film, big budget, amazing director, cast, whatever. But I think there were people working on that who would not necessarily be working on it because on a smaller film, uh, for instance, Nightcrawler, which is one of my favorite films uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed, um, I had a remarkable experience on that film. Was it easy? No. Did we have money? No. Did I complain a lot? Yes. Did I work all night and drove home in the traffic at six in the morning? Yes. Um, did I make a lot of money? No. Okay. Was it a good film? It was frigging fantastic. Right? If you've seen the film, that is an A plus, A plus, A plus film. 100%. No Riz Ahmed was a newcomer. It was his first film in the United States, courtesy of Jake Gyllenhaal and Dan Gilroy, one of the best writers ever in Hollywood. Jake Gyllenhaal, one of the best actors in Hollywood, vastly underrated. And I had an amazing time. Now, there were a few moments where I was like, oh, my God, you people are killing me because there was budget restrictions I couldn't afford. I needed a wig for a double. I needed some extra prosthetic wounds for all the the blood and the, you know, and then I ruined apparently, and I don't know why they shot in this particular house in Tarzana, California, up in the mountains, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes away. They decided to shoot in some house that they rented and they used the people's own furniture, which is the first I've ever seen. And it was a white sofa. And of course, got all this blood. And I think I ruined a sofa, rather expensive one. But I remember thinking, no, 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 no. Why did you not have like an Ikea sofa when you're making a film about blood and murders and killings? Did you think that white sofa was going to, you know, that's my thing. Now, on a big film, you could have 20 sofas. No one would care. But on a small film, you really don't. So you have to come into it saying, hey, can we can we cheat? Could props and set dressing? Can we maybe just put a plastic cover do something so the actor can, and you know, that's the difference. But I think it makes you far more resourceful. You have to rely on what you have, not what you want. Um, and I think it's a little bit, my only way to analogize it is like little kids, when you teach them how to make something for a, a Christmas or a birthday gift, you know, or a holiday gift rather than buy it or Halloween. And you make your costume rather than buy it. Um, that's my philosophy. On a big film, however, you have the resources. So you, if you do make a mistake, which you will, you can go, you know what? That wig didn't work. That prosthetic needs to be re-sculpted. And you go back to the lab or you, you know, whatever. So I, I would say I love to work on a huge film, but I also really miss the days of a night crawler or nocturnal animals. And if either one of those directors called me tomorrow and said, we're shooting, and if it were seven, eight, nine weeks and they treated me well and they, you know, it was respectful, I would absolutely do it. That's uh, that's a, that's a fantastic analogy that you used. And uh, the whole difference, like as much as like some people might not agree, like I see your point. So you mentioned, you know, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, and I, I wanted to bring this point up as well. There are people you frequently collaborated with, so you collaborated with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, Daniel Craig, Denny Villeneuve, uh, you know, 
multiple people. Is that something that's uh, kind of like premeditated or like you get along with them at one point and then it mm -hmm. goes on and on and uh, they're like, uh, all right, I definitely need Donald. Mm -hmm. So how has that kind of worked throughout the years? I think for me, it's I've been very lucky. I've been very fortunate. You know, luck, what do they say? Luck and opportunity and all that stuff. And I've worked hard. I mean, you know, but I've been very fortunate. And I don't ever not believe that. And and I worked hard for it. But I also, you know, the opportunities were there. Not everyone gets them. Not, And that's a fact. And so people who do get them also then, and I, I'm not really answering this question properly, but while it's in my head, um, people who do get the opportunities then have to be responsible in order to help people who don't get the, the, those breaks to help facilitate recommending, hiring, mentoring, teaching, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that part of it. Um, but I think certainly working with, you know, Mark Wahlberg for so many years and you just get used to each other. You become friends most of the time there sometimes you don't want to become friends because it makes it harder to say no for instance mark Wahlberg. i mean i i love him like a brother you know we're, we're very close we made i don't know 18 films together but he just was working on things i mean in all fairness and honesty i wasn't interested in from what i do as a makeup and prosthetics and hair designer and a makeup artist i I didn't want to work on some of the jobs he's doing. I don't even need to say the names of them. You go, what am I going to do? Um, but on the other hand, we did The Fighter together, which is one of my favorite projects. And he was spectacular as a producer and a star. Um, and then uh, another opportunity presented itself with Daniel Craig. And that opportunity was great because then I stopped working with Mark and just said, I'm sorry, I'm going to go this direction. It was difficult for everybody. And then I went to work with Daniel Craig for a long time. And then I had to stop and something else came up. And Jake and I always try to work together. It's very hard with our schedules. We really try. I mean, I'm actually going to go see him today. We really try to stay. But he goes to New York. I'm in LA. I go off on a job for six months. He suddenly decides he's going to be in something. So it doesn't always work. Um, the beauty, say, of Daniel Craig is it's it's sort of, you know what, that thing that I talk about, six degrees of separation from that film and play. I guess it was directed by Fred Skepsi. Um, for instance, somebody asked me about Denis Villeneuve, who is, you know, by far my favorite filmmaker I've ever worked with. If I can say this is my favorite, I don't want to hurt people's feelings, but of my top, let's say my top three. But he's my friend. I adore him. I love him. Um, we've done four films together. I'll always try to be available, always, for him. I will put make that a priority because he makes me a priority. He really does. Uh, I missed one film by accident, and that was Arrival. And actually, in Arrival, there actually wasn't anything in it for me. There was no makeup element of Arrival. Do you know what I mean? It's a beautiful film. It was all about Patrice Vermet and the production design and the sound. And, but it really didn't have a makeup element. And, and I remember at the time I couldn't do it because I was with Daniel Craig. And Daniel had heard of himself. We were shooting Spectre in Mexico City. And Daniel had messed up his knee quite badly. And we had to shut down and he had to have surgery. And so I really didn't think since we were delayed, 
I didn't really want to phone Denis Villeneuve up and say, Denis, I don't know what to do because I'm supposed to come and do a rival with you. And he said, well, you're going to be tired. Like, why don't you just don't worry about it? And at first I thought, oh, I feel terrible. But I realized what a good thing he did for me. He did the right thing. He didn't make me feel bad. He also probably knew he didn't really need me on that job. And a part of me is like, you don't need me? What? You don't need me? But Daniel did need me. You see, it wouldn't have been right. So it goes around. And also, I met Denis Villeneuve through Roger Deakins and his wife, James. That's the connection. And they recommended me to work on Prisoners. So that's how I know. Den you see, full circle. And everyone has a piece of that. So I, But I love to collaborate with the same people. Uh, costume designers, makeup, hair, uh, production. I just love it because you start to really understand how they work and you don't have to go through all that exhausting. How does he feel? Does he think I'm wrong? Does he, does he do it like that? And you stop all that nonsense and you just, you come at it, you save so much time and energy. 100%. So uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, Blade Runner 2049 and Dune. So you have two films. One is a sequel to a beloved classic, Blade Runner, the original movie. And then you have Dune, which, uh, you know, you've had various other adaptations as well. But uh, Frank Herbert's novel has been around for quite a long time. And it's got, you know, both, both these films, uh, even before they came out, they've had, like, the public's eye has been on them uh, religiously from pre-production to whenever it's going to come out. So how daunting was the task? as a makeup artist and, you know, trying to bring the vision to life. Because, okay, Blade Runner, it already had something visual, but then Dune, uh, people who read the book, if a million people have read it, there's probably like a million different uh, ideas in everybody's heads, you know? So trying to stay, stay true to Frank Herbert's vision, bring all that stuff to life. So talk to me a bit about that. Well, I mean, Blade Runner, okay, so Blade Runner 2049. Um, okay, no, Blade Runner... Sir Ridley Scott's Blade Runner that I saw, like everybody, I don't know what that was, 35 years ago, um, is essential to my work. I've used it for a reference back to when I started in Canada on Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future in 1988 or 87. I use Blade Runner as a great example for makeup, hair, costume. Uh, it's been my go-to film for many, many years. So is Apocalypse Now. So is Barry Lyndon. So you have these very different films. One, Denis came to me with Blade Runner. I have to say, I thought, why are they asking me? This is so not what I do. Because somebody said, well, you work very based in fashion and very based in reality. And I said, well, grounded. And I guess I do. And then I thought, well, Roger Deakins, I think, had talked to me about it as well. And they were all signed on. And I happened to be going over for lunch one day very casually with his wife and a few friends. And we started talking about it. And everyone, I realized, everybody's nervous. And so when Denise said to me, yes, I want you to come on board and, and design all the makeup. And I brought on the hair team and all this stuff. I remember going, why me? And then when I finally called Denise, I was on another job in Boston. I said, Denise, I'm terrified. And he goes, my friends, so am I. And I realized we were all a bit trembling in the wind. And so once I gained some, regained my composure 
and I was working with, come on, the best. I mean, Roger and James handling everything, cinema and camera and Denis and all these people, I thought we're going to be fine. We're going to be absolutely fine. And so by the time Dune came along, I think, well, I don't think, I know, I gained a kind of confidence because also something shifted in me in those couple of years. I, I mean, I grew. I did. Something happened. Um, I've actually talked to people about this. I think something happens fundamentally in a man's life. I can only speak for myself. So anybody listening, I can't, I'm not saying this is what I believe for everyone. But I do believe I had a little bit of a change for a lot of reasons. You know, I had a huge health scare, uh, well, more than a scare in um, four years ago. Um, and it was catastrophic and it was a very big part of my life and it was life changing. And so I went through a lot and I recovered and, and it was a very personal, private thing that I went through. Um, and it was it was not good, but I, I got through and I survived. And um, and I think that I had a shift in personality, which I don't know why I'm telling you this, because I don't know anybody listening. But maybe that's why it's a bit of a, conf a confession. I, I don't mind sharing it. And. And I felt like my life was nearly lost. And then it was saved by lots of people's intervention and helping me. And, and here I am. And now Dune comes along. And I think my focus was now, I'm too old to worry and freak out and stress. I need to get on with this. And I need to do what I know how to do. And I think the difference is, maybe between, I don't know, like 49, 50, 51, 52, something happens. Because suddenly you kind of, you know that thing when you're a younger filmmaker, and no matter what department or craft you're in, you always get questioned. People will always make you question yourself. Hey, Donald, why are you doing it like that? Hey, Don, why are you doing this? And they do it to everybody. People do it to you. Hey, why are you doing that? And then you kind of have a moment where you say, no, 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 no. Here we go. I am now 50 something years old. I know what I'm doing. End of story. You don't defend yourself anymore. Why are you? Why would you defend yourself? And, and I learned a lot of those things from my father, from other filmmakers, from is just going, wait a second, I've done it for 30 years. Why are you questioning me who's been in the business for three minutes? You know, and if you ask enough people, they'll all tell you they will relate to this story because many of us feel that, you know, you could analogize it as well. I went to my wonderful dentist, David Keene, to fix something that was a problem. And it would be the same thing of poor old David, like getting ready to do what he's doing and then stop him and say, is that the right way to do it? Like, it's insulting. He's had nine years of post-secondary education, you know. He's been practicing for 20 years and somebody's questioning, are you using the right tip on that filler for that bonding? You know, anyway, um, I don't think I've answered your question. I'm sorry. That's that's fine. I, I kind of like it when people go on and go off on a tangent, use a whole different uh, insight, to, you know, various things. But that, that was cool. Uh, so as a makeup artist, you know, you, you receive this script. I'm just going to go back to like the production side of things. So in, in pre-production, once you probably signed on to a movie, you get the script or maybe, maybe when before, uh, 
how close do you kind of work with, you know, like the concept artists, like on, on movies like, you know, Dune, where uh, you have so many concept artists working on it to determine mm-hmm. the look of a particular character. Uh, how do you kind of, you know, start off from that process and then work, to, work your way towards, uh, you know, production? You know, this is really a great, it's a great question because so many things have changed and evolved in film. But I I will say makeup particularly has evolved almost, well, almost, I would say more than almost any other category or craft. I mean, apart from technical things like sound and, and cinematography, which are, you know, can be highly technical and still artistic. But makeup has evolved a lot. It's it's been refined to such a scale, plus visual effects, plus CG, plus plus plus. And I think that um, what I find, um, you know, as you're working uh, now, you approach, you'll go on a film where there's say the marble world have a very definitive way they work. It's like a, I have had positive experience with them, but some people don't love it. They think it's very factory, and and I'm not here to to do that to them. Marvel were fine with me. I know that the type of research I do, unnecessary. The type of boards I present, unnecessary. Um, but that's okay. You know, they were very good people to work with. They employ people. They have a very specific way. And and I think they're not wrong. Um, but when you work with Denis Villeneuve, for instance, uh, he'll have someone like Sam Hudecki, who's one of his story. I think there's multiple. And then other people who are, you know, working for Patrice, who are in the production design, their storyboard. But these are people who work as sort of draftsmen and storyboards and ideas and concepts. But I mean, to be fair, one thing that has to be said, those are used for different purposes, whether it's to start to have a conversation, costume, makeup, hair, props. But that first concept, that's not necessarily what I'm doing. And sometimes those people are mis, I don't want to say misrepresented, but I think a lot of focus is put onto what they do because what I learned, for instance, on Blade Runner, and I work very well with Denise, principal uh, storyboard artist, where, where we, I go visit him, I bring him what I'm working on, and I look up on the wall and I kind of go, oh, okay. So I'm going to give you an example. In Blade Runner 2049, there's the pink joy. You know, when she's pink and she's projected, that was very difficult. So I'll try to simplify. It was very difficult from a makeup design point of view. Technically, Roger and everybody knew how they were going to do this as a VFX, as shot in camera with her. And then she's going to be projected uh, as as basically a hologram, right? But it was still in camera. It was still filmed. She still had to be made up. This is what people don't realize. That was me. I mean and my team had to paint her pink and find the wig, which was gonna be pink, but it didn't work. So we had Carrie put a, the bluey mauve one on for the contrast. I had to get contact lenses made. So I nearly lost my mind on that one character because the concepts, as good as they were, were concepts to dimension on pieces of paper. So, you know, I'm looking at a, at a thing like this going, yeah, that looks okay, but it's not what I do. And then I have to figure out how is this going to look three-dimensionally? So there's that. And sometimes it was a bit of a disservice because I started noticing like one of the drawings, who, and it came from someone, 
I found that the pink looked red to me and we all perceive color differently. We still hadn't cast the actress. Very important, skin tone, ethnicity, um, coloring. Is she blonde? Is she light? Is she dark? Is she, yeah, you know? And that was another thing because I had in my head what she may look like. And of course, as she ended up being very, um, she Cuban, not European, Cuban. Um, I thought, well, this is very different now. This is going to be a different because pale pink, it works differently depending on the complexion. So if you put pink on me, we'll read a certain way. But if you put pink on somebody with a lot of yellow in their skin or green in their skin. So the technical world for me starts to play up. Then the contact lenses, because Denise said to me, well, in this drawing, they had them a certain color. And I kind of thought, I think that we should try something different. So I took Anna de Armas to a, a, luckily we had the time, to a contact lens fitting. And we decided we'd go with something really almost like the color of a grape, but darker, like a raisin, you know, super, super dark. And that's how it evolved for me. But I had to go through up to Roger's office at least 10 times saying, Roger, what is pink to you? What does pink mean to you? Because to me, pink is, is, I'll tell you what pink means to me. When I was a kid, we used to have bubble gum that came in these card boxes. You know, like uh, Bubblicious, Double Bubble. You know that, and it's powdered? That's what pink is to me. But you ask someone else, pink is the color of, of a type of flower. or, But that could be fuchsia to you. And fuchsia is red to some people, and that's what they were drawing. So uh, to make maybe not drag this on, I think I think that you have to see it on the person and then make this decision. And that would happen on any film I've ever worked on. But particularly, um, I did it with Jared Leto with the little things. Con Concept-wise, ideas of wigs and weird, funny hairstyles didn't work. I knew he couldn't shave his beard and he couldn't cut his hair. But the idea of a wig to disguise his hair, I thought was a fatal mistake. I knew we could make him look different with a nose, with the cheek acne and the contact lenses. And I'm very proud of it because we found a solution to a problem without doing something that would have actually looked way worse. Solution to a problem. So what you know whatever field you are working with whatever department you're working in filmmaking you always come across this you have yeah. uh, a character yeah how are we going to do this how are we going to solve this problem so uh, that mixed with you know you you collaborate with so many people coming up with you know uh, like you said you went to Roger's office like 10 times uh, you know contact lens fittings all of that stuff so uh, throughout the years uh, how do you think this collaborative process with makeup design particularly has evolved the, the collaborative process mostly well i think it's great i mean i think it's always been there were times where i think it was stronger i think there were periods where i felt um you know everyone in film and television feel they're not respected enough and that i listen i'm not disagreeing i think it depends who you're working with i've talked to people from all over the world who say you know we're not treated so well and and i don't disagree I mean, I think there's certain times culturally, depending on what's going on in the industry, I've talked to people in certain countries who will say 
makeup are particularly not as well treated as the cinematographer. And, and I've heard it before, and maybe it's true. And I've experienced some of that on my own. I think it's, um, I think that collaboration has always been there. I think it's finding the right people. I think sometimes you work with the wrong people. And there's a point knowing, you know, like when you go in for a job, and I say this to a lot of my younger um, trainees and juniors, I always say to them, you know, if that's a problem for you, like if you're going to take it all very personally or not be criticized or I've had it happen where I've said to someone, you're not going to be unkind. You're not going to slap somebody's hand and pull the brush out of their hand. Although people used to do that, um, which was wrong, but it's how I came up. Uh, actors who used to say, don't touch me. You know, no, no. I mean, you had all that nonsense, but then you also had people who were very, very respectful, you know, and, but there are a lot of people now who are so hypersensitive and I think, okay, I get it, but it's not all about you. You're here to do a job and to be, so people will tell you, I feel that you're feeling, you know, and like, no, we're not doing that. We're not having you tell me how I need to feel because in the end I'm the boss. And, and I didn't go through that when I started, I was very respectful of my elders and, people that were very well established. So you do get some people who I think the collaboration, they say they're very, often the people who say they're very collaborative are the least collaborative. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then the people who are kind of stubborn, I'm a bit stubborn. I'm stubborn <laughs> in that I need to, you know, what's that Joni Mitchell song, both sides now, you know, um, you have to look. You have to be able to go this work, this, this, this. But a lot of people don't understand. It's a, it's a way you think. Um, but I know when I work with Denis, I know that if he doesn't have an idea, which is rare, he will expect me to have one. And he know his eye is crucial. I mean, it's just crucial. He's got a great eye. David Fincher's got a great eye. Damien Chazelle's got a good eye. Tom Ford's got a good eye. And there are other directors actually don't. Not that they... I'm not being funny or they don't have a great eye. It's not what they do. They rely on other people to say, I defer to you. And I rather like that as well. And sometimes I wish someone would say to me, you know what, Dom, I, you decide. And I'm like, I kind of wish you would. And, and so as far as collaboration, very important, very important in training people who are coming up and I really do hire people who are new and up and coming sometimes to a disadvantage to me. But I do think there's a teacher in me that feels like, ah, oh. but if they don't get a chance, they won't. And a lot of people would say, get, get out of here, you know, and I don't want to give up on people that easily. Um, but certainly when I started, I had made some mistakes. I mean, you know, I was the junior on the fly for David Cronenberg. And I screwed up that makeup a couple of times. <laughs> and and I think on a lot of jobs, they would have fired me, but I was punished, you know, and, and it was such a stupid thing. And now I laugh about it. But at the time, I, I was so upset, you know, I couldn't sleep and I thought I'd be fired. And it was just a ridiculous thing that I did. And, and uh, you know, nowadays you would not be fired for that, but... I don't know. I mean, I was 21 years old, so I'm glad it happened when I was 21 and not 51. 
<laughs> very, very true. I really like that part where you kind of mentioned, you know, uh, you, you take people sometimes, you, you hire people, younger people who are upcoming, sometimes at a disadvantage to you, but you try to coach them. Uh, essentially, maybe I, maybe I used the wrong word, uh, not coaching, but uh, you said you mentioned teaching. So uh, I think that's what it is because, okay, I mean, in all fairness, I mean, people took chances on me. I had no phenomenal. I mean, I'm just a kid. My parents weren't in the industry. I had no connection to the industry. And by the way, a lot of people don't, but a lot of people do. I don't worry about them. They're on their own. If you can go to a great film school, great design school, and there's, I mean, let's think about it. There's a lot of them. But if you can go and do that and pay the tuition and do all that, you're going to meet people. You're fine. But if you're not that person and you're only getting opportunities, like you're going to be a makeup artist or costume working with the background tent uh, and you're working really hard at three o'clock in the morning, you need an opportunity. I understand that. And not everyone gets a degree in film. And it's okay, you know, not everyone finished school. Um, but at the same time, I think that, yes, and I think what I do like to reiterate is I will look at younger people with potential. And I always say to them, you cannot cry. You cannot turn into a baby on me because I'm taking a big chance and it's going to make me feel bad. But what I have noticed is a lot of people I take a chance on, I think what's happening is there is an entitlement that comes with it. And I don't want people to be entitled. So just because you maybe didn't get to go to the AFI or RADA or wherever, you know, and you got a break from me, don't think you're off the hook because you actually have a higher standard because you got somehow in with me. And I'm very strict about that. But I do think it is our responsibility. And again, I go back to my father who, you know, passed away recently, that it, it's um, in all the condolences I received from people. The, the one thing that always went through my mind was he was a very, very good teacher and a scholar. And I, and I learned a lot from him and I wasn't the best student and I'm not the cleverest and I'm not, you know, I couldn't do math or algebra and I couldn't, I could never get through school today. But I understood other things very well because he explained how you analyze things. And I think that's how I think. And he did believe in like really teaching people because if you don't teach someone how to read Hamlet, then how will they ever learn anything? And it's wonderful to be taught how to read Hamlet or how to read James Joyce. And my dad actually taught me how to read James Joyce. I understand the portrait of the artist as a young man, which is probably one of the most difficult books in the English language. But I understand it because he took the time to teach me. But, you know, but I do think it is the, the responsibility of when we're in this moment now of hashtag times up, me too. All that stuff we hear about, but sometimes it's indignation. Sometimes the very same people that say it, you know, the hashtag and all that stuff, they're not doing anything. Teach somebody. Take a mentor, a mentee, mentor, go to a school, volunteer. Then I might take you more seriously. But I think it's easy for everyone to say, you know, this is what's happening. So, I mean, that's my soapbox. But it's something I do think. And I try with the crew. So if I have a very good crew and I can sneak in or just, just squeeze in one person, even for a couple of weeks, 
couple of days, I'll do it. Give them an opportunity. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I kind of want to go along that pathway, but probably that's a discussion for another time. I'm just going to bring back, you know, come back to the uh, production side of things because I have a few questions on that too. Uh, okay. You know, you have uh, the you have the glamour side of things. Like, you know, maybe maybe you can make someone look just a little bit too beautiful. But then, uh, you know, serving serving the 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 story, like something like the fighter, uh, you kind of need that lived in feel. Like they don't they, how do I put this? They, it's not a very glamorous movie. It's it's kind of like real life. And you mentioned before, people say you know you do grounded stuff so uh you know you have uh actors coming in and then you probably had like you know tone them i don't know if, if i'm using the right words toning them down and like making mm -hmm. them a mm -hmm. believable part of that story so you know that particular process it's i'm pretty sure it's not easy like uh you worked on first man with uh damien chazelle as well and then you know making uh, giving giving that like, lived in household uh, feel to mm -hmm. like the, the, the mm -hmm. characters how much of research kind of goes into uh you know makeup like that well i think first man was was more difficult than it looks because simple is tough simple is really difficult uh first man i worked hard because you know with ryan and claire foy and making them look like real people who of that period which i think they did and that's a very specific period the 60s and 70s that particular socioeconomic class of person living in America, university educated, but simple, not, they weren't glamorous people. They were very, uh, I mean, for instance, Claire Foy, who I thought was remarkable in the, in the project, but Claire Foy's character is a woman who, she's not just a housewife of the period, you know, that was a woman who's gone to university and studied mathematics. So you had these people and that's where they met. So it wasn't like country club and the way we've seen like 60s films are always, you know, astronauts wives. Do you know what I mean? This was real. And I think it can be difficult. I think Dune had elements of that as well, um, which I really cherish being able to work with actors who rely. I mean, I did it with Emily Blunt and Sicario. I thought she looked beautiful, but she didn't look manufactured. And that was my goal to make her look not manufactured. And and I love doing that sort of thing. That's that's exactly the word I was looking for. Manufactured as if like, you know, you get a doll from the factory sort of thing and <laughs> it just takes you away from the whole story. And that's right. Yeah, you see you see a lot of that, like even in uh big tent pole movies, and you're like, why why did they look like that? <laughs> yeah. Uh so, oh, you know, you have like, so makeup design wise, uh, taking into account different, different genres. So you have, you've worked on like whole, uh, the full spectrum. What's your favorite to work on and why uh, genre wise? I think everything is different. You know, I'm not, uh, comedies don't really appeal to me. Um, I never thought science fiction did, but actually it does. Um, I love it. I love it so much. And and I think I, you know, I go back to literature. I mean, I never thought of Margaret Atwood as, you know, a Canadian writer and pretty amazing. I never thought of her as a science fiction writer. I don't know why. And then I, one day I sat down and thought, but that's actually what she is. When you think of Handmaid's Tale and The Cat's Eye and 
all of her books, and they're remarkable books. Um, I do like science fiction very much, in, in, and it's not something you expect. And I like dramas and period films, but I'm not as interested in working on period films now because I sort of made this decision one day. Obviously, it's all about the costume in the period films and a lot of the hair. But I do think that the makeup on contemporary and based in reality, the makeup will lend often more to the film because it will have a story. You're going to have a story where the makeup is part of it, especially with men, because you'll have a lot of men that go through films where, you know, whether it's the leading man or he goes through an evolution, generally on American films or most films, uh, the women, the ladies are looking nice. It's rare you're getting a film where the ladies look real. And I would rather do that because looking nice is great. And that's a lot of pressure, but it's, it's whatever. Um, but I do like based in reality. I love where you can really help tell the story where the makeup is nuanced and subtle, that it doesn't become that everyone's talking about it. I mean, I felt like in Dune, we have a couple of huge makeup, like huge makeups. But at the same time, what I loved about them was I don't think they're overwhelming or take away. I hope not take away from the narrative or take any because the it helps the actors. So whether it's Dave Batista or David DeSmalchin or Stalin, you know, in the fat makeup, I was very I had a very um, definitive idea of what that should be, of course, with Denis approving everything. So I'd go to him with every idea and get his feedback that we were in the right direction. And a really good example of what you mentioned before was, I think, The Guilty. You know, you have, it's it's Jake in one particular location. It's just one location, mm -hmm. but you take him through that entire character arc. And like, mm -hmm. I see, I've, I've always, I've, you know, the, the camera's on his face for most of the time. Like, you yeah. see the, you know, you like, you see that transformation from the first scene to the end. And it's just amazing how much Thank you for that. And contribute to the the story. It's but you fantastic. have a meticulous eye because some people can't see it. You saw it. The other people can see it, but you know what you're talking about. I mean, and obviously you you know about film and visual and but the cinematography I thought was fantastic. Um, cameras on him. It's this. There's no diversion. Um, I appreciate it because that's how we felt. I mean, Jake and I and Antoine we talked about it. It's got to be fraught. You've got to feel this is happening. But you can't go from A to Z in one take. It has to go up. And we talked about that after you vomit, like something happens to people. Um, I learned that a lot on Stronger with Jake, where I changed his eyes. I changed his eye color actually after this catastrophic event because some people feel that you do change. Your whole being changes. And I thought it was an interesting thing to try. Um, so after that explosion where he, he's, you know, tragically loses his legs, his eye color is different. And, and I really enjoyed doing that. So um, I would say, yeah, based in reality is very much, um, you know, I always joke around because friends of mine do things like Lord of the Rings. I'm like, don't ever call me. I, don't ever call me. I mean it. Those films were spectacular. It's spectacular, but I'm not interested in that kind of makeup and, hair per se. It's not my vibe. I hear you. Uh, final question before I let you go. Um, so you mentioned, you know, so the character goes through that arc, mm -hmm. but you do not 
shoot it in that particular order. Besides pictures, right? Besides pictures, what do you do to maintain continuity? Is there anything else at all? Well, what a great question. Um, well, it's a very good question because sometimes I look at a film. Okay, when we're doing something, like and I think of Blade Runner 2049, all jumping around, but it was a, a manageable cast. It wasn't a huge cast, so Ryan particularly. And I had a separate book for him where I took pictures, and I'm very old school. I mean, I click, take a picture, I print it, I write on it. I have a little notebook. I have a cheat sheet that I put. Everyone laughs at me because I'm so not high tech. I have a cheat sheet. Remember index cards, little index cards. I put them all up and down the wall and I it's it's my cheat sheet. Scene 42, broken nose, blood. I know the whole movie in my head. And I just have to look up if I don't know, I forget. I look up quickly and the actress and I was look at me going, what am I doing for this? And I'm, well, you're doing this, that, and the other. And the actor doesn't know, but I know. And I look up at my little cheat sheet or I put a few notes up with a, you know, little, what do you, you know, those, um, these things, you know, put those sticky up notes. everywhere. Sticky yeah. notes. I put them up everywhere, like a crazy person. And um, that's how I do it. And then when the film is over, I usually love to go through it really quickly, flip through it because you have to look for the beard stubble and, everything, the skin tone. And I kind of go, wow, actually, I think we have a match. And I'll usually say it to my team at the end. I'll go through the book and say, I think we did it. We have a match. Um, no one's perfect. And there's always a screw up. Let me tell you, no matter what you do, it's really hard. There are times people who watch the films don't realize that we agonize. We agonize over where you made a mistake or the blood was here and it should have been here or you, you move the mustache or you trim the beard too short. Oh my God. But at the end of the day, we are only human and or we do the best we can do, but we don't get five takes. You get, we get one take. Exactly. <laughs> and that's why it's, um, you know, it's, it's an underrated job, but it contributes so much to the final end product, uh, end result. And, uh, Donald, uh, I definitely want you on the show again. So we're going to do this. I would love to be back. Now, tell me, now, where 100%. did you, did you study film? I did, yes. <laughs> where did you study? Uh, well, on, on film sets mostly. <laughs> fantastic. Okay, fantastic. Yep. Okay. Well. In your home uh, country, in Sri Lanka. Well, yeah, that's where we've been making uh, movies for the, the most part. Yeah, but... Uh, Donald, thank you so much again, 100%. And uh, my, it was to, you know, your, your work again. So uh, tell well, them, this is Jankai If you want to do it again, I'm happy to. And for the audience, I'm happy to. And um, we can talk more about Dune. Um, but yeah, whenever you want, uh, December, January, you let me know. Um, I would love to. And if it helps. And I nearly had a job in Sri Lanka, I'll tell you. It was a very interesting thing, and I don't know what happened. It was a project a couple of years ago. And and so I, I love being able to travel and go to new countries and places I've never been. And and um, it looks so beautiful, so, you know. But projects come and go. You know, things happen. And the economics and the strategies of, you know, suddenly you're off to Morocco, and then something changes. And they say, no, we have to go to Abu Dhabi and and 
the same thing in America. You think you're shooting in L.A. and they're like, uh, no, we're going to Cleveland. You know, that kind of thing happens all the time. So it's very it's always exciting to get an opportunity. And I like international films very much. So um, I'll keep my eye out for for Sri Lanka. That would be amazing. I would love to have you here. I would love to come.